0: Hello and welcome to a second series of The Art of Work, a podcast looking at how we find fulfilment as we pay the bills. I'm Christina Patterson, I'm a writer, broadcaster and coach and today I'm delighted to welcome Bruce Daisley. Bruce is a writer, consultant, expert in workplace culture and host of the chart chopping podcast Eat, Sleep, Work, Repeat. A former European Vice President for Twitter, he's the best-selling author of The Joy of Work, and now of Fortitude, Unlocking the Secrets of Inner Strength. In this podcast, he talks about toxic resilience, the importance of laughter, and why he had to leave Twitter. So welcome to The Art of Work, Bruce. I'm really thrilled to have you on the podcast. And I loved Fortitude, and I, I smiled actually when um, when I saw the title, because both of my books are kind of about resilience they're not a my first one's called the art of not falling apart and it's kind of mix of memoir and interviews about how we cope when life goes wrong it's not a business book about you know resilience courses or whatever but my most recent book is a family memoir and i suppose the kind of key theme really which i certainly wouldn't have planned and didn't want was you know uh basically suffering how we cope with human suffering it's not it's in no way a self-help book but I was interviewed by the bookseller about it and the um journalist said something like um oh that 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 quality that your parents had what what do we call it and we were saying, no, can't stand resilience. And she said, Fortitude. And I thought, yes, Fortitude is exactly what it was. And at that point, I thought, you know what? That's what, that's what the theme of this book is. And I've never seen a book called Fortitude. So I was really, really intrigued to see that you'd written one. It's, and it's quite an old fashioned word. So first of all, what made you alight on that
1: title? um so i wrote a previous book called the joy of work and uh and we'd really struggled with the title for that it had previously been called like new work manifesto and various things like that mm. and then the publisher said we don't like the word manifesto <clears throat> fair enough anyway the um <laughs> i think joy of work was the publisher's uh suggestion and um and like, you know, if you went back through the the age of time, there was a book called The Joy of Sex. And I think he saw it as like a play on that. Anyway, you know, I hated it. I hated the name of it. Oh, really? And uh, and so and so when it came to um, the second book, I was really clear from day one. I wanted a word that was synonymous with resilience, but wasn't resilience. Mm. And so, you know, from... The very first draft, the very first um, putting sort of a, a, a pen to paper I've always had this word fortitude in my head because it was just like it's synonymous and but it feels robust exactly. and singular and different. Anyway, the the publisher was like when when the proposal went in, the publisher was like, OK, and we'll come to the title next. And I was like, that's the only non-negotiable. That's the o- <laughs> that's the only thing I'm not going to change. I changed the title last time and I hated it and I and I was really upset with it. I'm not changing the title this time.
0: Fortitude sounds to me like a more grown-up word. I mean, we'll get on to business books in a minute, and they're kind of endless buzzwords, which is not my world. Although I do, I, you know, I do bits of corporate work. And um, well, for example, um, you say in the prologue, you become acutely aware that a consensus can build up around a topic that parrots the views of a small number of experts and ignores the inconvenient, con- contrary voices of others. I call these books smart ass thinking. I can't stand them. I find it baffling that people in the business world are so taken in by them. Why are they so popular?
1: Yeah, and you know specifically the um that was, you know, with reference to the the phenomenon that exists right now is all these resilience courses either for kids or in workplaces. And you know, so The way it generally works is a contractor, a a wellness company will come in and say, we'll do you a resilience course. In itself, an interesting prospect, but it's an unregulated space. Mm -hmm. And, you know, beg the question for me, people said to me, oh, well, I got sent on a resilience course at work. It didn't work. And that begged a really interesting question because then you're like, okay, what is that resilience course? Because, you know, if I said to someone, Uh, I've got a course, and it's going to make your health, you know, fifty percent better. Then you might say, okay, how are you measuring that? How by what what metric? Or you know, if I say I'm going to make you, you know, I'm going to make you run far faster, you've got a very uh, evident way to measure it. But in terms of saying to someone you're going to make them more resilient, and you know, the the reason why it became relevant is because actually, whenever you look at some of the most famous interventions for resilience, they don't work. And so then I was like, okay, this is really interesting. You know, the US military spent in excess of half a billion dollars sending its employees on a resilience course. And the good news is we're able to see the assessments of that, either through <laughs> the reported resilience of those people or through um you know, the the take up of the course, whenever, when that course was made voluntary, no one at all attended. Um, Or, you know, most of the resilience training is based on the work of a sort of a pocket of American psychology. And, you know, a a couple of really big iconic names. And their work has been very heavily researched by independent uh, researchers, and has been demonstrated to have you know, the same effect as a control group. So Mm. you'd you'd broadly declare that as having no result. So I was just intrigued. Wow, so we've got all these resilience training courses that people are being sent on and they don't work and we can prove they don't work. What on earth is going on here? So we've got people who are... You know, I've just uh, literally come off a call where a company was like, you know, the bosses have decided that we need resilience training. We need a resilience webinar. So we're surrounded with all this resilience talk. And yet the product that has been produced to solve it doesn't work. It struck me me as this really interesting issue. And actually, the book is part investigation. It's like it's part of trying to get to the bottom of where all this comes from. Why we spread so much hokum on, on it and why, in truth, we miss the solution to all of these things that sits plainly in plain sight directly in front of us.
0: Fascinating. And, and one of the things you mentioned in the prologue is your trip to Lebanon and the um, a very pithy assessment of resilience made by um, somebody who was, again, constantly told about uh, their the, the, the resilience. Tell us that story.
1: Yeah, so my partner's Lebanese, and and we we go to Lebanon probably a couple of times a year. And we were in Lebanon a couple of years ago. There was this phenomenal, very, um, very sort of movie-like uh, explosion that took place. If you if you YouTube uh, Beirut explosion, you'll be reminded of this extraordinary thing: biggest peacetime explosion in any city, uh, third biggest explosion in in any city in history after the two uh, atomic bombs in Japan. And, you know, it felt like it. We were a couple of miles away and uh, we were really fearful. You know, before you know what's going on, we probably had an hour where we didn't know what was going on. But what we had known is that the building shook like the biggest earthquake that I could imagine. And then all of the windows were sucked out. And let me tell you, the, the sound of air leaving a room which I presume was, you know, now sort of being sucked in to feed the explosion. But the the sound of air leaving a room is this haunting noise that you've never really heard in real life. Um, And it's like this sort of sucking, screeching sounds that, you know, you look at each other thinking, I don't want to let on how scared I am right now, but I'm really, really scared. Mm. Um, And, you know, what happened was that it became evident what had happened was this, government-led incompetence that led to this explosion. Loads of explosives left unattended in the port, but all of the Lebanese people said, well, the world will help us now. The, the economy had collapsed. Everyone had lost their lifetime savings. The, the currency was in free fall. And, you know, this. it felt like the final insult. It felt like, you know, a, a tenth goal when you when you were alwe- already losing 9-0. And the expectation on the ground was, oh, uh, the world will come and help us. France will help us. The, the Americans will help us. Europe will help us. And uh, so everyone was like, really expectant, please help. And all of the news coverage was like, well, if we know anything, Lebanese people are resilient. It's like, hang on, that's not what anyone here wants. Anyone here wants help. We need help. And, you know, the New York Times and the BBC and, and, and all said Lebanese people are resilient. Beirut is the capital city of resilience. It's like, oh, wow, this is it really struck me that, wow, the term is a little bit politicized. It is this phrase that we kind of use for victims of something. You know, right. you're only told to be resilient because something's gone wrong. And um, we're often told it, I guess to some extent, because no one wants to help us. So you're not going to get help right now, but good luck being resilient. And what you end up with, actually, you end up with this sort of strange victim blaming. That If someone doesn't help you and things don't sort themselves out, which is broadly how you can describe the subsequent two years for the people of, of Beirut, um, the, the people who were asked for help can say, well, you know, good job we didn't help because you've not been able to sort yourself out. It's sort of this victim blaming that gives deniability. That sounds far more political than I, I think you know, it, it possibly needs to. And the book really only delves briefly into that. But I think at the very least, I, I think, you know, anyone listening to this might be prompted to think about how often they hear the word resilient. You'll hear it if you listen to radio or TV news. You'll hear it at least once a broadcast. You'll read it in the newspapers once or twice a day. You'll see it on TV shows. You know, I, I spent a couple of days going through the websites for British schools. And I struggled to find a single school that didn't have resilience or growth mindset on it. So these words are around us everywhere. And we we might invite ourselves to think, well, if this thinking is everywhere around us, then why does no one hold it to account when it doesn't work? Why does no one say that resilience training course did not make anyone more resilient? It's just really strange how we kind of give it a pass.
0: Yeah. Um. I, I was asked to do a growth mindset workshop in a school some years ago and I needed the money and I did it and I made a total hash of it. It was one of the most embarrassing <laughs> things I've ever done. And I had to gather up the feedback forms at the end of the day and they were, you know, they were not good. And I thought, yeah, well, it's rubbish, isn't it? I just don't believe in this stuff. Um, and I can't do anything well if I don't believe in it, which is probably why I'm not in, in you know, a job. <laughs> <I> mean, <laughs> I'm freelance, but... Um, um, I mean, I, I have to admit, I was delighted to read about Martin Seligman's, uh, you know, being the, the guru of positive psychology. I've always joked that I'd write a book. It's kind of, you know, the positive power of negative thinking. I did write a column some years ago and the headline was Why Negative Thinking Makes the World Better. And I got an email from someone afterwards saying that it had changed her life, which I was very pleased about. Oh, that's um, amazing. You know, I'm not, I'm not a fan. I, I mean, I've got anyone who knows me or listens to this podcast or reads any of my journalism or books knows that I've got very, very, I get very irritated as soon as anyone says, you know, I'm an optimist. It's just like, well, do you want a medal? So what, you know, it's got nothing to do with anything. Your, your, how you feel about something as we know, in fact, people who are excessively confident and we'll see what happens with the new prime minister generally do a worse job than people who have a realistic sense mm. of their um, skills and talents. But I was delighted by your debunking the Martin Seligman um well, courses and their inefficacy, um, and also uh, the Angela Duckworth and Carol Dweck. Were you surprised by your findings on these people?
1: It's really interesting because um, I felt that chapter acts as a little bit of a punctuation. Really, the book sort of starts with all these stories about um, remarkable success and and sort of uh, interesting things, and actually at the end of the book, there's quite a few stories of where resilience lies you know there's one chapter with just three stories this the final chapter has got a, another example and so this chapter which is effectively sort of marking the homework of all the people who've gone before to some extent felt like the meat in the sandwich mm. I felt like I had to do it and um but it it felt like you know quite often when people are telling me they're listening to the audiobook I always think oh I wonder what they'll make of that chapter, but. I felt it was essential because the it's very easy that, you know, you've got a school that will say we're teaching growth mindset. Now, let's be specific about what the central premise of growth mindset is. The central premise of growth mindset, as popularized by Carol Dweck, and all of these things are at the Church of Individualism. So they're at the church that, you know, the thing that's going to determine your outcome in life is you. Right? It's it's incredibly sort of individualistic, you know, it, Um the, the notion that there's no circumstance; it's your attitude that's going to determine these things. And the the original growth mindset research said that they changed, I think, two or three words. They um, they gave people an exercise to do, and they they got a relatively low score on it by design. And then they uh, oh no, they they gave people an exercise to do, and they they got a good score on by design. And they variously gave two groups different. Uh, responses they said to some you did really well on that because you tried hard and another group they said you did really well on that because you're clever and um and the conclusion was and it's remarkable the extent of it in the original research that those who were praised for hard work went on to achieve much better results than those who were praised for being clever that was it Three words is what the essence of it. And it achieves about a 70% shift in in outcome. And it's quite a facile piece of work to the extent that – One researcher, I mean, I spent a long time going into the research of of this, one researcher said there's one thing that all of the successful replications of Carol Dweck's work have got in common. All the times that people have attempted to reproduce what she did with success, there's one thing they've got in common. Carol Dweck was involved in the replication. And every other time that someone has tried to reproduce what she did, mm-hmm. it's not achieved the results. You know, it's non-existent, said one survey of people in China. it's It has zero effect, was this result of a huge survey in the UK. And it's like, okay, this is really interesting because, I mean, I, I kid you not, I spent so long going through websites of schools trying to find schools without growth mindset. Like, it's everywhere. Mm-hmm. It's like this – It's you know, it's the currency that's used. And yet, hang on, does it even work? You know, how come no one's questioning this? How come it's just become so popularized by one? I mean, I don't know if you've read that book, but it's an awful, like <laughs> a really sort of um, unrewarding book, but it's like it's been heavily popularized. And then you, you're sort of struck with, wow, because because it's so ubiquitous, no one's asking to see the working on it. Mm-hmm. And so that's do you, do you, the, the quotation from the book are you are you open with. I was just really struck by, wow, when something becomes the mainstream, no one goes back and checks. So, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, the work of Martin Seligman, I see Martin Seligman as, um, as like the Robert De Niro of psychology in the sense that he did some really good work, <laughs> it, you know, established his reputation earlier in his career. And because of, of that, he's given a pass He's, you know, he's done, a, done Rocky and Ball Winkle He's done all manner of, you know, uh, it's some uncle film that he did. I can't remember. He's done all these terrible films. But each time he does a terrible film, people say, no, 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 but Taxi Driver. But, you know, dot, 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 you know. And uh, we forget all of these awful things he's done. And to some extent, Martin Seligman's a little bit the same. He did some really good work at the start of his career. And then when his reputation was that he was the leading psychologist in the world, The work he did subsequently, which to a large extent is the most, um, the the money, the the work that's earned him the most money. I don't think you could say it's of the same impact. Martin Seligman is a classic old style Republican, you know, Ronald Reagan Republican. He's a a George H.W. Bush Republican. And so as a result of that, he believes that small government and individuals are responsible for things. Now, you might think that's an unnecessary distraction, but what it means is that when he's creating interventions, and let's think, so he's resilience training, that he, he went to soldiers and he was in, brought in by the US Army to give resilience training to soldiers who, you know, they have an off-the-charts mental health issue. But the experiences of trauma are colossal. More American soldiers die by their own hand than by enemy combatants' hands. You know, it's the rate of suicide is, is drastic and terrible. Um, and he caused that he went in, that he tried to offer them, invites them to stop thinking about the bad things and, and hunt the good stuff. And, you know, I mean, you might say that's incredibly dangerous because what you're saying to an individual is if you're feeling trauma, you might want to ask yourself why, what you've done to get things wrong. And, you know, it's just alarming and dangerous. Now, you know, a, a sort of a big distraction to go through all of that, but I, because I go on and I'm far more optimistic about what the, Real causes of, mm. of resilience were. I just felt like I needed to nail that. Mm. I needed to specifically say what my issue was yeah. with that individualistic approach.
0: Yeah. Well, I think I think that's fascinating, and and it was necessary. And as you say, there are such political implications, not least since we, you know, as of this afternoon, we have probably the furthest right prime minister we've had since Margaret Thatcher. Mm. Um, arguably without the same degree of intellect, but who am I to comment or know? Um, I did wonder, because I do actually think there's quite a political dimension to a lot of your work. I appreciate that's not your arena, but are you careful to be, well, you're clearly not that careful to be non-political in that (laughs) it's evident, it's evident, sort of evident what you don't like. Um, Do you, would you ever consider political you know, engagement beyond the kind of work you're doing?
1: Uh not really. I love in America these um these I, I love um grassroots mm. movements. You know, Dreams in America that, these
0: Barack Obama, you read Dreams of My Father, which is I absolutely yeah. loved. It's such a fantastic yeah. book, isn't it?
1: And and there's an organization in the US called the Sunrise Movement, which is um sort of self-organized ecological protest. It's the equivalent in a slightly more sort of charming way it's the equivalent of extinction rebellion but in Mm. a sort of rather less prickly way it's like you know loads of gen z kids self-organizing um so that's the stuff i'm really interested in sort of you know whether there are movements that that are self-creating and self-perpetuating i'm really intrigued with in that because i think this sort of a weariness of uh, top down politics absolutely no, look you know we're, we're not going to lose that anytime soon, but um you know those are the things that really inspire me and really interest me
0: do you see yourself as an activist
1: you know when I left twitter i um i, I used to work at twitter when I left twitter I, I was like I the you used first to
0: work at twitter
1: for <laughs> yeah 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 I did I used to work for twitter i used to um i used to uh do a sort of fairly um Uh, high status job there I guess if you wanted to be blunt about it I ran Europe Middle East and Africa for Twitter um and when I left Twitter I was like okay I want to get involved in ecological stuff I want to feel I want to feel like and it's very difficult actually I sort of trained I applied for the Al Gore climate reality Mm -hmm. thing I trained under Al Gore for that um and it's very difficult to know what your next step is in these things you know Unless you're going to start a movement or do something yourself, mm. it's very difficult to insert yourself, especially as an outsider. I think I'm mm. quite an outsider. Very difficult to insert yourself in these things. So, yeah, I think the challenge for a lot of people. In fact, that was the other thing I was going to mention previously. There's a there's a really interesting uh, Instagram and Twitter account called Run for Something. It's an American account, and I, what I love about it is that it's trying to set up a you a young generation of diverse political candidates to, to run for office and so their job you know and it's it's broadly a democratic um with a capital d mm. movement which try and get you know if you're a 28 year old woman living in brooklyn it, actually there's there's a perfect example living in queens uh alexandra mm. Um, you know uh, run for something because you can help change the the look and feel of politics and you know so it's it's to try and bring that and i think uh, the, the scope for more of that in, in the UK, more people feeling that they've got a place in local politics, they've got a place in national politics, because they don't see themselves reflected right now.
0: Fascinating. Um, and so if I'm if I'm thinking of the kind of broad conclusions you draw in Fortitude about community, connectedness, control and sync... You had, at Twitter, you had very high status and a community and were in many ways responsible for fostering that community. My understanding is that it was when the culture then, you know, you'd created this fantastic bars, it was all great fun. And then when the culture, when people started leaving, that you thought, actually, I need to look at from a kind of more scientific view at... Um, you know, kind of what creates a good work culture. Can you tell us a bit about that?
1: Yeah. So, um, what happened was I was. Um, I've always, I've always loved. I, I started my uh, at the age of sixteen. I started sort of working in fast food restaurants, and um, and then I worked in bars and restaurants. And the thing you discover very quickly when you do those jobs is that you know, while it's quite transactional, bar work has a high turnover of people you work with. Um, you can very quickly work out, oh, I think I'm gonna have fun here. There's just like a, a lovely dynamic. And what really struck me was when I joined a, you know, something that I'd gone to to study for, that the, there were similar dynamics. Sometimes there were places you worked that had a really lovely feel to them yeah. and some that didn't. And and what really struck me was that often it wasn't directly the bosses who were responsible for these things. You know, I worked at one place where it was a little bit like Fawlty Towers in the sense that it was utterly dysfunctional. But there was a real rapport amongst the people. There was a lifelong connection between the people who worked there, despite the bosses. Actually, the bosses kind of, um, uh, you know, they, they sort of agitated enough annoyance in us that uh, esprit de corps came from. It was sort of created by the the disdain we had for the bosses. Anyway, and uh, I was... Um, You know, it's a really strange thing that if you do a full time job, it feels really sometimes, you know, it feels um, it's it's a bit like saying you love school in the sense. People feel reluctant to admit that they love the people they work with or they love the environment they work with. And so it feels uncalled. It feels like you are sort of you're buying into the system. But, you know, my feeling is if you're working 40 hours a week and you're doing it with and you're laughing and you, you're doing it with people you like and you feel you've got some scope to have a difference. It just makes, you know, this 40 or 50 years we're going to spend working feels it's a, a lot more agreeable to spend it with a smile on your face mm. than than anything else. Um And so, you know, I was just really interested in what the ingredients were for that, you know, and I think because it went really badly wrong at Twitter and um, the culture went really badly wrong. And so uh, there was a sort of degree of, of self healing. It was like, okay, well, what can we do to improve the culture around here? And you know, what your discoveries naive little old me didn't realize that there's a whole discipline called organizational psychology. It's like the, the psychology of groups. I never knew that. Mm-hmm. And so all of a sudden you're like, Oh, all right. So that lovely feeling um that I had before people have studied the components of it and the benefits of it. And so it's like, wow, I'm, I'm sort of dazzled by all this. And so, you know, I wrote a, my previous book was sort of um, this like cookbook of interventions that anyone could create to improve their team dynamic and specifically like the inspiration for it was i went into one company where the receptionist had changed the culture mm. and i loved it. it was like wow how democratic the receptionist had gone up to the the um one of the the colleagues there and said you know this is the worst place i've ever worked <laughs> shout out to that receptionist and um and she said this is the worst place i've ever worked the the culture's awful um You know, like no one talks to each other. And so she, because no one responded to that, she took it into her own hand. She sort of went out and she bought, you know, a, a carrier bag full of potato based snacks. She laid them all out on paper plates. She sent an email around the office saying, ladies and gentlemen, it's the best time of the week. It's crisp Thursday. You know, before long, the next week, they were having crisp sampling Thursday where they had, you know, Italian versus Chinese based snacks. Uh, The following week, they she dressed up as a Pringles tube and she was sort of that. Anyway, before long, it's just it shows how trivial these things are, really, or how easy they are. Uh, Before long, people were saying, oh, this is the highlight of the week. This is the best part of the week, crisp Thursday. It's like, wow, someone with the minimum of effort had been the agent for change, mm. and I loved how democratic it was. Mm. I loved the fact that you know, you like. There's so many books about leadership. There's so many books about like you know how the bosses could be the authors of success, but there's not many about ah oh, ignore what the bosses want. Let them talk about strategy, even though it's you know things are going to ruin. Um, how can we do something that's just going to make our lives better? And that was the sort of the spirit behind it, really. That subversive idea that all of us can make our jobs more agreeable
0: it's so funny because i loved it when i read that that story in your book i i was absolutely thrilled because i knew nothing i ran an arts organization for a while 20 20 years ago and a, a very small arts organization and um I've always been mad about crisps so much so that some people call me Christina. <laughs> and um, on the slightest excuse, tiny bit of good news, I'd go out, get bottles of Carver kettle chips. I started the poetry reading group and we had margaritas on the roof terrace. We had the 5.45 on Friday where we all knocked off and went down to the bar. I realised and then I wrote, um, I did some research into the NHS when I had some bad experiences of it more than 10 years ago and to my absolute horror, I was asked by the chief exec of Surrey County Council to give a talk on how to have fun at work. Because I was talking about, by then I discovered there was this thing called culture and so on. And I just realized that, you know, we had a lovely time at work because we had a lot of crisps and drank a lot. Of course, now you couldn't possibly make something based around alcohol. And you do talk, yeah. talk about the kind of downside of going to the pub. And I do see that, but I'm afraid I'm, of the of the old school that always thinks, you know, a glass of something chilled kind of cheers things up enormously. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but I loved that story because it was, um, I mean, you know, it, it is these little things that can make such a huge difference, isn't it? It re- really is. And,
1: and never more so than now, you know, yeah. because a lot of people I think have worked out that there is something agreeable about getting some of your work done at home, especially because... You know, a lot of people really struggle to get anything done in the office. You know, mm. the, the normal thing that you forget is that the average office, you'd wander into a meeting room that you had booked, and they're sitting stressed at the table with someone who'd look up anxiously and say, Have you got this booked? Because they were just sheltering in there trying to get anything done. Mm. And we forget that very easily. Um, so a lot of people have sort of felt that being able to work from home, or whether that's going to just permit your you get your domestic responsibilities done with a little bit less stress or, you know, you can, you can just live the complexities of your life without work dominating them. Um, you know, a lot of people have found those things agreeable. But what you find is that there's a really interesting bit of research that came out this summer, which is that people who work hybrid, people who are sort of split between where they work, um, the the smallest number of them really ever say that they've got a best friend at work and it's
0: tragic absolutely tragic yeah. my friends most of my friends I made at work over the years
1: yeah and having a best friend at work is the biggest predictor mm. of whether you like your job absolutely and you know and look you know it feels like a bad thing to say but when someone doesn't like their job it haunts them mm. you know it dominates their thoughts it dwells with them it, it you know it it lives in a black cloud on their Sunday nights. It, you know, it fills their dreams. The idea of enjoying your job isn't a concession to, to the system. It's just a way to live a better existence. And I yeah. think having a friend at work, we forget how important. Absolutely,
0: it is. but also I think there is a lot of, and I understand this and I admire it in many ways. But this kind of enormous emphasis on find your purpose and you kind of think, God, that is putting a lot of weight on what is essentially totally. earning a living, you know. And people, as you say, people enjoy their job if they have a nice time with their mates. And they don't if they don't. And if they like their boss, it's better. And if they hate their boss, they don't. I mean, I was very interested in that research you quoted about the Swedish men who had a 60% higher chance of heart attack if they had a horrible boss.
1: Mm. Um,
0: but I, I do worry that there is a kind of idealism here um, that, that makes, that's very hard to live up to. And particularly if, I mean, this, you know, I realize why people are saying hybrid is the future, but personally I've been freelance for um nearly a decade now I'm a very extrovert sociable person I massively miss I wouldn't particularly want to go into an office every day and and of course I'm now completely hooked on the freedom and probably couldn't stand it and couldn't stand to have a boss but I do really miss the buzz of it I really miss having a laugh with colleagues and all of that stuff where are you on that
1: yeah, I mean, like, it was it was the defining thing for me. You know, going home at the end of the day thinking I've laughed twelve times today, mm. and you know, I can only remember one of them, but uh, we laugh so much because. And, you know, there's just trivial things along the course of the day mm. or, you know, callbacks to something that happened in the morning that get a riotous response in the afternoon. I loved it. It made me it was probably, the, you know, the, the most important thing of, of my working. Um, yeah. And look, you know, the, the thing I would say about remote working is I don't think we laugh as much. And, mm. you know, that's really sad to lose the sound of laughter from I our agree. lives. You know, Um that's just an RNA Zoom call. The lack of synchrony means that laughter just doesn't work the same way. Mm. Even if something's funny, you just don't laugh in the same way. And I really mourn it. Um, And, you know, that's the challenge of this moment. You know, the old thing that they say is uh, compromise. Uh, you know, we, we've all learned to accept compromise in our lives, but compromise is where you two people get what they didn't want. Yes, and, exactly. Uh, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you know, that's the challenge of the sort of modern existence. Yeah, we're getting more flexibility and freedom. And look, I have people who are evangelistic to me. I had someone uh last week who contacted me whose wheelchair um who, who works who uh, lives in a wheelchair and and uh, and she said it's transformed mm. our experience of work because we no longer look like looked at with rolling guys that you know uh they couldn't be bothered to come in today or they you know but they can get their job done mm. and so you know these people are like this has transformed the world for us or you know the amount of Mums who say, you know, it used to be I was failing at something. I was going out the door at 7.15. I was really stressed on the way. I was getting home at 6.30. I was failing, 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 failing. Now I'm getting my job done with clarity, but also I'm feeling like I'm a decent parent. It's transformational for these people. I did some really interesting analysis, actually. Someone contacted me um, uh, about a year ago. From Australia, and Australia had a very weird lockdown, where initially they were sort of rubbing our noses in it of mm-hmm. with their unencumbered freedom, and then they had, you know, I think Brisbane had more days of lockdown than than any city in the world. But someone shared some data with me about the return to work that they briefly briefly had ahead of us, and uh, me and this anonymous collaborator, we did an analysis of the return to work policies of the organizations. And in Australia, you have to publish your gender split at every level of the organization. So you very quickly, can produce an index, which is uh, what we did of what someone's gender index is like. And then you can run it alongside their return to work policies. What we found was, it was almost a straight line correlation. The more A male-dominated organization it was, the more likely they were to to demand a four or five-day return to the office. And the more gender balance there was, the more likely they were to say, it's two days a week or one day a week in the office or more flexibility. And so, you know, that's why any organization that's sort of saying to itself, we've got a diversity and inclusion Mm -hmm. agenda. And there's another example from the US where Um, They looked at people who were excited about going back to the office and uh, ethnic minorities were significantly less happy about going back to the office because they were experiencing day to day. They're experiencing gentle elements of. Uh, microaggressions, you know, comments about their hair, comments about their appearance, people mislabeling them as angry. And so, you know, just being able to work remotely and able to remove themselves from those microaggressions. So any of these things make us think that I hear you, you know, that the office has got some good things to be said for it. Laughing with colleagues has got a lot of good things to be said for it, but we probably need to you know, back to that old story of compromise. We probably have to accept that we're gonna get some things we we don't necessarily want because it's in service of us getting some things that we need.
0: And do you personally feel in the I suppose you'd call it portfolio life as a consultant, speaker, thinker, writer since you left Twitter, do you personally feel that you have the kind of good balance of fun pleasure i mean of course there has been a pandemic coinciding so it's rather hard (laughs) to do a control experiment but uh, because we were all doing our work remotely and it wasn't a barrel of laughs for most of us but are you personally happy with the mix of of your work now
1: you know, the, the only danger I've got is that because I've just been through the process that I had a book coming out and so you, you're like, you're very focused and you're like, "Well, this isn't typical that I'm working like this. This isn't typical that I'm working like this. But, you know, I think broadly I would say, you know, I've got a really clear goal one of the findings of the book is the importance that we get you know, broadly the the summary of the book to avoid buying it is that resilience is the strength that we get from other people mm-hmm. that's it resilience isn't this magical thing that some of us have got some of us haven't got resilience is collective strength that we we draw from those around us and so you know i made a little note i'm not sure it's in this notebook or the other one i wrote all of my friends down mm-hmm. and you know like which might feel like a strange exercise or i wrote I'm down all of a the blood group-
0: that you've got in <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm pretty good at that actually. Yeah. I'm pretty good. Oh, there you go. It's in this book here. And oh, um <laughs> and uh uh and um and I thought about the groups I'm part of and you know, so that one of the things I started to do was plan a reunion of people I used to work with a few years right. ago. Mm. Because I was like, okay, I, you know, I want to make sure that these things aren't accidental. Yes. These things are serviced and looked after. Um but I think, you know, one of the things that I need to be better at is I need to um just you know, make sure I'm I, um, keeping bringing more laughter into my life. Mm. I'm, I'm I'm okay at it. I'm I'm probably better than your average person, but it's like an obsession of mine. Trying
0: mm, to no, find more. To I used laugh. to write quite a lot of you know quite funny. Some of my columns were you know allowed to be mildly witty, and I honestly I <laughs> it seems impossible these days, and everything feels unbelievably <laughs> earnest. And and that's why I mean really? I'm not affected because I don't have a job, but in the sense of remote working although I am in terms of broadcasting and I have to say doing the tv from via zoom is just not a patch on going into the studio it's just yeah. uh, there's no spark there's no spark yeah. and as you say people are slightly out of sync and it's all just a bit kind of worthy really but um but I am yeah and
1: there's that there's that phrase the, um the sort of uh collective effervescence there's something you know. Mm. Um, uh, emil durkheim i think coined it but people like brenny brown use it and there's something that when people are together mm. you know the collective effervescence is just a perfect expression when people are together just like this Absolutely. fizzy magical energy Absolutely. appears and you're so right you know solemnity and sort of earnestness are at the expense of that and, and actually like this long history of of Carnival and partying and celebration and dancing mm. being choked out by society because exactly. it was, well, seen I was as- very
0: interested. I was very interested to read what you've written about sync. Um I'd not heard of that as a concept before, though obviously I think you know we've all heard the research, not that I am an choir though I was briefly as a teenager I had to wear an awful purple lean dress, but it was quite good <laughs> I think we sang Verdi's Requiem or something. Um and I people you know they in the happiness charts singing in a choir is always kind of you know very near the top um mm. tell us about sync and why that's so important and how we can how we can achieve that at work but also what lone freelancers how how near can they get we get to achieving sync
1: i think more than anything uh, firstly it's an understanding of, of all of these things that some of the things you can't Synthesize at home. So lone freelancers really need to be aware of this more than anything else, you know, like, okay, you've got this wonderful flexibility or liberty, but actually knowing that spending time to maybe go to do something with other people is you know self protective is a, a like it is a really important lesson that i've got um yeah. for myself um yeah i th- i think just there's something about feeling in synchrony with other people that seems to unlock the magical stuff there was there was uh, a br- beautiful sort of semi philosophical thing that i saw the late chief rabbi rabbi jonathan Sachs, wrote and he was musing on I think it originated uh, uh, initially from a conversation he had with the Dalai Lama. And he was talking about how the um, the, the Jewish people in history, because they had no place to call home, they were transferring their culture through actions and deeds and words in a way that was far more important than, than other communities. And he used this phrase. He said the, there's a word in the Old Testament, there's a word in the, the Bible that... that um, It appears 11 times, and, you know, it might seem like you you skim past it. It's this word simha, and it means joy. It means shared joy. And he said, actually, you know, it, it, it shouldn't be underestimated. When it comes to the transference of our values, of what we hold dear, of who we are, these moments of joy are some of the most important parts. And it goes to the heart of rituals. It goes to the part of, you know, if any of us sit there, Gosh, we're closer to the end of the year than we could have even imagined, you know, at our New Year's Day when, like, the, the year seems this impossibly long thing and already we're two-thirds of the way through it. But, um, you know, when we get to the end of the year, we'll, we'll sort of reflect on our favourite moments of the year. And there are almost always moments of shared experience, shared joy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's very rare that your favourite moment of the year will be you closing a book and, you know, doing... But it could be, but it's often... Ah, oh, I had that lovely dinner with this person. Yeah. We gathered with this person. We went for a long New Year's Day walk with this person. It's like they shared experiences. Mm. And I think, you know, that for me is a really important reminder of how any of us get through life, how, you know, for organisations or families or individuals. Mm.
0: And you are, grew up in a, on a council estate in Birmingham, which is probably not true of all that many tech titans even if you're not necessarily a tech titan anymore you're a titan of something else I don't know what <laughs> um, um what would you say were I mean how I, I mean what there's a what's say there's a word for it now it's not decoding it's something about you know when you when you make a transition from one class or background um I mean what, what was your code switching of, sorry what was it
1: Code switching. Yes,
0: code switching. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. Um what was your model of work growing up and what were your ambitions as a child? Work wise.
1: Um, yeah, I, I, I think I, I really didn't know. I really didn't know. Um, You know, I had no model of work. My my mum had worked in the Cadbury factory and then became a receptionist. And then my dad had been a bricklayer bricklayer and then he did night's call and he became like a salesman sort of sold container shipping uh um and so you know i hadn't I had no idea really of off you know i just wanted to try and get an office job that and that's as broad as it was so mm-hmm. i had no notion of what jobs were um i wanted to get an office job and that's it i had you know so as a result of that when it came to like um careers i I had no idea I went to university and then I saw other people applying for like milk round jobs you know where recruiters would come in and so I applied for legal jobs um and I did really badly in <laughs> that because I don't think I really understood what the the job I was applying for was um yeah I had had a very rudimentary knowledge of what jobs to even aspire for I had you know I had no role role model to understand really
0: and what and so for you, and ending up, because I know you you put together this incredible um, sort of cartoon CV, which got, landed you your first job. Um, and then you end up at uh, YouTube, Google, Twitter. How much did that feel like? What, what did that, I mean, I know these things happen so gradually that you, you don't think day to day, oh, wow, I'm a kid from a council estate who's now VP at EMEA of Twitter. But did, did you did you have that uh, any sense of kind of because class-wise, um, as we know, these industries well, most high-paying industries are dominated by middle-class and you know well-off people. Did did what was that like for you? Did did you did you have to kind of did you have lots of natural confidence that enabled you to deal with that, or how did you make that transition?
1: Yeah, I think no, I I didn't is the answer, but um uh. Yeah. I mean, like you say, it's it's incremental. It's every step along the way. Probably the one advantage I've got, you know, these days, uh, I guess people have got more awareness of neurodiversity and and like, but I've just got no rear view mirror. So actually, when I when I left, um, when I left university, I spent about a year doing bar work and restaurant work in Birmingham and I would tried to get you know, I didn't know what jobs there were. So I thought, well, what am I interested in? I was obsessed and i remain obsessed with pop music, sort of new, con- anything that's released in the last four weeks is what I'm always obsessed with. And, um, and so I applied for jobs at record companies, which is why I do that cartoon CV. And I actually got offered a job as the post boy of Virgin records. A woman called Karen Harry's offered me the job and, uh, uh, Oh, no, Karen Hayward was at Virgin Radio. So who offered me the job at Virgin Records? Anyway, I uh, the, the job was I had to drive down to the post office uh, every morning. Well, I didn't have my driving license. So I said to her, okay, listen, I'm going to take a an intensive driving course for the next week and a half. And if I pass, I'll start the job in two weeks, three weeks. And if I fail, I'll phone you up and I'll give you the job back. Anyway, I failed. <laughs> oh, no. I failed. <laughs> I didn't observe properly on a corner. And you know, the thing about that is that albeit I went back then and I went back to working in international convention centre serving drinks, I went back to sort of working at the Grand Hotel. I never, I never, there is something wrong in my brain, I recognise. I never once reflected on what might have been or what would I be doing. Never once, never once. There is something wrong in my brain in that regard. Well, it's clearly something very
0: right in your brain. Yeah, it was was
1: very very protective of
0: me. I mean, I would never have thought to call that, would you actually call that neurodiversity? I don't
1: know. I don't know. But like, I, I never spent any moment going, oh, what would I be doing now? You know, I'd be in London now. I'd be I have never once, genuinely never once. Sort of, it was like I, th- I think probably because I thought, well, it happened and you can't change it. Yeah. I don't know. I never, but as a result of that, I just got got on with trying to do. Yeah, and you know, I, the the one moment when I got to YouTube and the record industry had had, a subsequently catastrophic 15 years with illegal downloading I thought oh yeah you're probably better off now not having been through the record industry the last 10-15 years Mm. because you know you're at a better place but yeah no I'm I'm very fortunate that I had no rear view view mirror because otherwise you sort of you know very easy to get caught up in a life of regret and remorse right.
0: What has been your biggest knockback at work and what got you through it, apart from lack of reflection?
1: <laughs> yeah, but probably the the hardest thing for me was, you know, I worked when I joined Twitter, um, and I'd join, and there'd been a lot of abuse on YouTube. When I was at, at YouTube, people used to say. You know, the worst place on the internet was the comments on YouTube. And so, and it was horrible. It's much better now, actually, but it was horrible. It was, you know, a lot of homophobia, a lot of misogyny, a lot of racism. Like, you know, just it made for a really unsavory place. Anyway, um, when I went to Twitter, um, when I'd first joined Twitter, Twitter was, Twitter was like this frivolous place where, celebrities would be talking to each other. You know, actually there was a there was a joy of female voices. Catelyn mm-hmm. Moran used to say, Wow, this is like a place where women can come and be funny. And we recognized for the first time how women had denied that platform on TV. You know, they weren't mm-hmm. on panel shows at mm-hmm. the time. It was like it feels like a a time away from time. But, you know, only going back a decade, there were no women on panel shows. Mm-hmm. Um and, you know, she was like, wow, it's just a reminder that we're not lacking in humor, we're just lacking in a platform really inter- anyway, the abuse started to get really bad, mm. pretty much from the start, and so my position was very clearly, my job is not to toe the company line. my job is to go into battle for these people mm. who are having a bad experience, and you know I'll be really honest with you, it makes you very unpopular in a company, yeah when you are picking fights you know there were, there were little situations like um uh, you know, very prominent female MPs would would receive some abuse, you know, and there were a couple of very high-profile ones would receive abuse. You know, there's one where um, one MP received a series of um, threats not to rape her, not rape threats. Oh, no. It, it was a, a, a very clever subversion of the rules. So mm-hmm. hundreds, thousands of people sent tweets to Jess Phillips, uh, saying we i wouldn't rape you very clever because it wasn't against our rules mm. and you know so my view was well we've got to take action on this mm. because you know these are people deliberately bullying and intimidating someone we've got to take action and you know the way that tech firms often react to that is they 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 sort of they dissociate themselves from it so they say oh well you know it, it's it's not in our rules. And I would, I'd be like, okay, well at the time, there's probably a thousand people working for the organization. I'm like, great. We are the people who wrote those rules. Uh, they'd like be like, no, 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 no. The rules are laid down. And you know, these people are okay, we are the rules. I don't know, understand what's happening here, but you know, who do I need to talk to? We're going to get this done. We're going to get this changed. Who do I need to be, you know? And so, you know, I was constantly, <laughs> I was constantly in battle with the senior leaders mm. and, you know, um because my view was would be that, you know, if I've got to go out and I've got to defend the company, I want to know that the company is doing something. And, it you know, it makes you very unpopular in an organization because, but I wasn't bothered about that, actually. It was more like, you know, honestly, if you knew some of the stuff that went on, anyone would do the same. I used to spend my Saturday nights and people would search like boss of twitter uk and they'd email me and my saturday nights were spent just sitting on the sofa just answering all those people wow. trying to help them wow. largely because the system was completely unresourced and was and was failing them and you know like it, it, it's you know I never never used to talk about it at all mm-hmm. at the time never used to tell people at all about it at the time um but it was like okay well, you know if this, and st- still loads of those people tweet me or at me or comment at me all the time now. Mm. But my view was if the company's not going to resource for it, then I, I don't want them to have this completely kaf- Kafkaesque experience where they've got no one to turn to. Oh. But, you know, so I think. Um, That was like the biggest daily, it's why the job sort of got burnout. I did that job for eight years, but you reach a point where you're like, I can't do this anymore. Mm. I just feel completely done in by it. Mm. And I think, you know, so those things play a big part in the decisions you play and and like the the experience you've got of of those situations Mm. really.
0: Well, you got out and you have written two two Sunday Times bestsellers. Congratulations on the latest. And I'm a critic for the Sunday Times, so I'm in awe of that achievement. Um, Congratulations. And it's been an enormous pleasure to talk to you today, Bruce. Thank you so much.
1: Thank you so much. I'm so grateful.
0: Thank you so much for listening. You can subscribe to The Art of Work on Apple, Spotify or any of the main podcast directories and I'd be really grateful if you'd share, rate it and or leave a review. Do sign up to my free Substack newsletter also called The Art of Work. If you'd like to find out more about the podcast, my books or explore the possibility of coaching with me, do have a look at my website theartofwork.co and do join me for another podcast next week.